The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 18th chapter. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to thee, O Christ. I learned something this week about saving people who are drowning, or rather the attempt to save someone who is drowning. So here's a, here's a little PSA, public service announcement for you about somebody who's drowning. You should stay away from someone who is drowning unless you have something very buoyant to hold on to, unless you've got something that floats very well. So here's what happens. Maybe you've seen this. Maybe you know how this goes. Maybe you yourself have experienced this. When somebody is drowning, they lose all sense of themselves. And they start flailing and kicking. I am a very weak swimmer <laughs> and have nearly drowned before. And so I know exactly what this feels like. Flailing and kicking and being desperate and losing yourself entirely. That's what happens when someone is drowning. And so if anyone gets near such a person, what do they do? They tend to reach out and grab the person who's coming close to them. The drowning person grabs whoever's near them and pushes them down in order to push themselves back up. That's why, tragically, tragically, there are often two victims in a drowning accident. The one person who started out drowning and then somebody who misguidedly tried to rescue them. Even if you're the strongest swimmer, lifeguards are trained that you should always have something that's buoyant, something that floats with you, because you, with all of your strength, cannot resist the effort that that person will make to push you down, even as you are trying to save them. It's a tragic thing, but you can picture it, how the panic takes over, how all of your weight feels like it is just dragging you to the bottom, how you're, with all of your effort, with every last ounce of your strength, you're trying to stay above the water, and so, consequently, you lose all sense of what is good for you, what's good for another person. You become completely selfish, completely turned in on yourself, and you may well take someone else down with you. That's the only thing you can think about, is saving yourself. That's what happens when someone is drowning, and anyone who comes within range becomes an object. Not a person, not a soul, but just an object. Something to push down in order to push myself back up. They become no different from a life preserver. And that's why you should be careful. Even if you feel heroic, you should make sure you have something flotational when you go to rescue someone who is drowning. Maybe you can see how this relates to our parable today. Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
to some who were trying to save themselves and so pushed others down in the process. That's the context for Jesus' parable. And this is the default state of humanity. You can see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. There is Cain and his brother Abel, and God approves of Abel and not of Cain, and so now Cain has to save himself. He has to trust in himself that he is righteous, and so what is his only recourse? What's the only thing he can think of to do? To kill that other guy, to push him down so that he can be lifted up, to get rid of the comparison. He looks better than I do. God loves him more than he loves me. God favors him. He loves his sacrifice. What's the only way I'm going to make it? Let me get rid of him altogether. Let me push him down in order to save myself. That's what Cain did. The first murder and one of the most grievous sins, the sin of a brother against a brother, That's the default state of humanity since the fall into sin. It is utter selfishness. The fact is that most people can live outwardly decent lives most of the time. But when push comes to shove, when it's your righteousness that is at stake, then all bets are off and everyone thinks of saving themselves. Just like when someone is drowning, they might be the most compassionate, caring person in the world the rest of the time, but in that moment, they cannot help but thinking only of themselves. That is how humanity is. That's how we are by nature, because of the fall into sin, because we know, like Adam and Eve in the garden, that if we were to come into the presence of God, it would be all judgment and wrath, because we know We are not perfect, like our Heavenly Father is perfect. And so what did Adam and Eve do? They started by hiding. And then when they couldn't stay hidden, what did they do? They reached out for someone else to push down. It's that woman you gave me. It wasn't my choice. It was the serpent that deceived me. Always trying to push themselves up by pushing someone else down. Jesus tells this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That is, they thought that they could work up a defense for themselves all on their own. And sometimes this looks just like the Pharisee in the parable. So that man came into the temple and he stood in the presence of God and he made his case before God. Look at me, Lord. I thank you. That's pretty good. What does he thank God for? I thank you that I'm not like other men, not like those sinners Not like those wicked people, and certainly not like that tax collector over there. This is great. I've got an easy target. Look at me, God. I'm better than him. Aren't I righteous? Aren't I so good? That's one of the ways that trusting in yourself for righteousness looks. Simply pushing others down outwardly, openly, so that you can feel better about yourself. But sometimes it is a little bit less dramatic, a little bit less outward and extreme. And sometimes it's just holding in your heart a list of credits, a list of things that you have done. Somebody came up to you and asked you, what kind of a person are you? Do you think you're a good person? Would you have a list of answers ready to go? Yeah, I'm a good person generally, and here are some good things that I have done. That's one of the ways that this self-righteousness shows up, keeping a list, keeping track of all of our righteous deeds, so that if anyone were to ask, if anyone were to audit our behavior, we could say, yeah, most of the time, look, I know that nobody's perfect, and I've got some weaknesses, but most of the time, I do pretty well. The problem in all of this, whether 
It's Phariseeism, really just openly, dramatically, pushing others down in order to lift yourself up. Or whether it's just something you harbor in your heart. The problem with all of this is that you're looking in the wrong place for righteousness. Again, we cannot help it by nature. Our eyes are turned in on ourselves. It's like everybody these days looking in on their phones. Our eyes, by nature, are turned in on ourselves. And so that's the only place we begin to look for righteousness. And we think we have to make it there. We have to produce it there. If we're going to stand up in God's court, if we're going to do well for ourselves, we have to be good. Let me make the case. But there is nothing in yourself to trust. If you try to trust in yourself for righteousness, to prove that you are good, it will be an ongoing effort your whole life long because you know, you know time and again how you prove to be untrustworthy. You know time and again how you fail, how you stumble and fall. You know time and again, in fact, as Christians, more and more throughout the course of your life, you know the depths of your degradation. That's one of the facts of being a Christian, is that you discover more and more sin in your heart. Things you never would have thought of before, things that would have remained uncovered. Being a Christian and hearing God's word means that you find out just how deep your sin goes. And so if you look to yourself for righteousness, to find some goodness, if you look in your own heart to prove that you can stand in God's court, you will be doing that your whole life long and it will never, it will never work out. And that's where these comparisons come in. That's where the Pharisee finds his security. Look, this is hard, all on my own. Thank goodness I got an example like this right over here. I can point to him anytime I need to show that at least I'm better than someone. But the fact is that the truly righteous person has no need for comparisons. The person who is truly righteous doesn't need to point to anyone else as an example. He simply is. Jesus doesn't need to point to you and say, look at all of those unrighteous people. That's the proof that I'm a righteous one. No, his deeds speak for themselves. His righteousness speaks for itself. And so the moment you find yourself needing to make comparisons, you know. You know that you must look somewhere else for righteousness. You know that you need mercy because it will not work out. The one who is trying to prove that he's righteous in his own heart, that person inevitably looks on others with contempt. That's how Jesus describes it. That's what always follows. If you trust in yourself for righteousness, you will always look on others with contempt. That is, you will look on them with disgust and you will think little of them. You will scorn them and disdain them and you will hold up all of their faults. You'll amplify, exaggerate, and highlight all of their faults so that you can feel better about yourself. That's what self-righteousness does. It treats others with contempt. It must, because that's its only hope, to be better than others or to be thought as better than others. This is the classic diagnosis. I think you know this. The classic diagnosis for why bullies behave the way they do. Bullies are always compensating for their own insecurities. Or when people tell tales, when they gossip, why? Because having words about somebody else makes you feel powerful, makes you feel like you're better than another. It draws attention to that person's weaknesses and sins and away from my own weaknesses and sins. And of course it begins in your heart. So the task for you today is to monitor your hearts Look in your hearts and see how you regard other people. And don't pick the easy ones. 
Don't pick the people who are nice to you so it's easy to be nice to them. Pick the people who you find it is very hard to be nice to and kind to. The people you don't like to think about because when you think about them, it makes you angry. The people who you treat with contempt in your heart. The people who you avoid. Because if you were to talk to them, boy, who knows what you might say. Watch for that. Look for that. And see how terrible contempt is. It's like a festering wound. It grows worse and worse and worse. And see also how grievous it is for the other person. How contempt is always taking the place of pity. There are lots of reasons you could have, legitimate reasons, to hold someone in contempt. There are lots of degrading, awful, sinful, wicked things that people do to you. But your reaction should not be to treat them with contempt, but instead it should be to pity them. Because they are stuck, just like you, with a sinful heart. There but for the grace of God go I. That's the old phrase that we should have in mind when anyone gives us a reason to be contemptuous to them. We should think, boy, if it were just for a lack of mercy, if God withheld his grace for a moment, I would fall into the same sin because I am made of the same stuff. And that is how we should think about others, with pity and not with contempt. We should think of others the way Jesus thinks of us, with pity and not with contempt. After all, if anyone had a reason to be contemptuous, to hold someone in disdain, to spite and scorn, to give just judgment, it was Jesus on account of our sins, on account of our wickedness, on account of the way we have treated him. Look, he died for you, and yet what do you do? Day after day, you continue to sin. You continue to love yourself more than you love others. You continue to honor others more than you, you continue to honor other things more than you honor God. You put your trust in other things. And look how he has not for a moment treated you with contempt. But here he is again today with pity and mercy for you, laying down his life for you. Not withholding his body and blood for you, but pouring it out generously because he knows that contempt will never save you, but his pity can. That's a marvelous thing. It is something that is overlooked in our world and misunderstood in our world. The world can't make sense of it. The world only sees that you win, you only get ahead if you think of yourself first. But Jesus says, what's better is to sacrifice. What's better is to show mercy and kindness. What's better is to understand that since you have received mercy, you can show mercy to others as well. Monitor your hearts and see. Look, if there is contempt, then you know that you are self-righteous. If there is contempt towards others, then you know that you are contemptuous towards God because he asks of you this, that you would love as he has loved you. Now, the irony for that Pharisee is that he was saying, I thank God that I'm not like other men and especially not like that tax collector. And that's the point at which his prayer goes deadly wrong. As soon as he makes the comparison, of course he has things to be thankful for. It's good that he's not a thief. It's good that he's not an adulterer. It's good that he hasn't committed all of these open and wicked sins. And it's good to be thankful. Just as if an alcoholic recovers, it's good to be thankful that you have recovered from your alcoholism. But the point where things go wrong is when he starts making this comparison. And look at how wrong it is. Because after all, that tax collector is the one who went home justified. What a pity. But the Pharisee said to himself, I thank God that I'm not like him, 
In thanking God that he was not like the tax collector, he was giving up his only hope. He should instead have said, Dear Lord, please make me like that tax collector, not in his wickedness, not in his sin, but in his humility and his plea for mercy. Grant that I may not lift up my eyes to heaven in pride, but that I may lower them down in shame, that I may come with a full knowledge of my sin, handing it over to you, Lord, because there's nothing in myself that I can trust for righteousness. Lord, if it's not for your mercy, I am lost. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Pray, God, that you would be like that tax collector, that when you come into his house, You would not come in pride, thinking of others with contempt, but that instead you would come for the one thing needful, the mercy of God. Church, despite appearances and despite what people think of it, church is the great leveler in the world. No one gets to walk in here better than another. In fact, it is precisely the person who thinks that they don't have anything to work on that has the most to work on. It's precisely the person who thinks, none of this has anything to do with me. I'm not self-righteous. That's the person who is most self-righteous. Church is the great leveler because you come in here, you all come in here together to do the very same thing. To get on your knees and to pray that God would be merciful to you, a sinner. And here's the good news. The Lord sends you home justified. When you plead with him not on account of your own righteousness, Lord, look at me, I'm so good. But when you plead with him, holding nothing before him but your sins, Lord, if you don't take these away, they will kill me, that is when you go home justified. That is when you become righteous. That's when you become bright and shining like the sun, clean, pure, and holy. Because Jesus has been merciful to you. There's a beautiful psalm, one of my favorites, Psalm 32. And I love it because there are are all kinds of things in this world that seem like blessings, things we could point to for blessings. And blessings are good, whether they're material blessings or spiritual blessings. But listen to how Psalm 32 talks about blessings from God. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. That's the starting place. Blessed is the one whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed are you because you have been forgiven by God. Blessed are you not because you have succeeded in justifying yourself, not because you have managed to clean up your act and to look good to the world. Blessed are you not because you're the one who thinks everyone else has a problem and you've got none to deal with, but blessed are you because you have been forgiven. Do not doubt it for a moment. You were in the water, drowning and flailing, desperate, gasping for air, about to go under. And you were there, ready to push down anyone else who would come close to you. And anyone else who came close to you could not, for the life of them, save you. No person can save you. But see what Christ has done for you. He drew near to you, closer, in fact, than anyone in their right mind would come. He came near to you to lift you up. He's like that story where Peter gets out of the boat and the wind and the waves are blowing over him and he's walking on the water while he has his eyes fixed on Jesus but the moment he starts to think about himself he sinks and what does Jesus do he steps up to him and reaches out his hand and grabs him and look Jesus's rescue is not like any other rescue he can walk on water he can defeat sin and the devil he has defeated death he came out of the grave the grave cannot hold him and as surely as Christ is risen from the dead so surely are your sins forgiven 
Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Praise God that he has been so merciful. To God alone be all glory now and forever. Amen. Amen.